We thank you that every day is a day that you have made, so we will rejoice and be glad in it. And therefore, every day is a glorious day, like we sang about. Lord, we thank you that you are the one constant in our life, the foundation that is unshakable. No matter what is going on in this world, no matter what is going on in our lives, in the life of our family, all around us, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that we can anchor our souls into that truth. I pray that you bless this time that we have together now in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In an interesting article published by BBC about six years ago, the author investigates the age-old conundrum about whether or not a more highly intelligent person is more successful and happier in life than one with average intelligence. In the article, he referenced a study that I had never heard of back in the 1920s. In 1926, the famed IQ test was newfangled and becoming more popular in the world of psychology. One psychologist, a man named Lewis Terman, took a study group of 1,500 students from the California school system who all had IQs over 140, with 80 of them having a score over 170. He studied their lives over the long term and what they ended up doing with their lives when they grew up. This group of highly intelligent students were, was nicknamed the termites. I have no clue why. And the results of their lives are still being studied today. There were some who led highly successful lives, such as Jess Oppenheimer, the writer of the famous 1950s sitcom, I Love Lucy, while others went into more regular careers, such as seafarers and typists. The stunning result that Terman found, the article observes, and I quote, Terman concluded that intellect and achievement are far from perfectly correlated nor did their smarts endow personal happiness. Over the course of their lives, levels of divorce, alcoholism, and suicide were about the same as the national average. So according to this secular article, what is the determining correlating factor that leads to personal fulfillment and purpose and, dare I say, happiness? The author points to others' work and concludes that it's wisdom, and humility. That's what he concludes. Wisdom and humility. Now this is very interesting since we know who perfectly embodies both of these characteristics, don't we? Did you know that this study is nothing new? Jesus had the exact same conversation with a highly intelligent scholar who still had no clue what life and faith were all about. And Jesus gives the exact same answer but not in some ethereal and unhelpful way. He describes exactly how we can have this wisdom, humility, purpose, and meaning of not only this life, but in direct connection with the next one. Towards the end of our message last week, you'll remember that I mentioned that following Jesus' run-in with the Jewish religious leaders at the temple, we see a movement of a large group of Jewish people putting their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and God. This is noted in John 2, 23. 
But this type of ministry where large groups of people put their faith in him would not be the only way Jesus would talk with people. He would also have personal conversations with individuals in direct connection with where they were exactly in their lives. In fact, John will record three such conversations, one right after another, in order, following this event. And John chose these three individual conversations for a specific reason to include in his gospel. John wanted to show how Jesus is sensitive, relevant, and salvific for people of all different backgrounds, ethnicities, and lives of sin. Jesus is for everyone, regardless of who you are or what you struggle with. The third conversation is with a thoroughly Gentile and pagan man, but rich in worldly possessions. The second conversation will be with a half-Jewish Samaritan woman who slept her way around the village she lived in. And the first conversation in this series is with a full-blooded Jewish scholar who is not only highly intelligent and educated, but was also supposed to be a member of the religious elite. In short, out of all three of these people from a human perspective, this first guy should have known what life and faith were all about, but really was just as clueless as the other two. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 3. It's in the New Testament. If you find the page that says New Testament, you'll go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you hit John. Uh, Or you can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. Uh, If you didn't bring your Bible with you, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 3. We're going to be in the first verse or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. So John chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So let's set up our understanding of this man named Nicodemus before we go any further. We read here in verse 1 that he was a member of the religious group known as the Pharisees. And we see a ruler of the Jews. So he's also a member of the Jewish governing council known as the Sanhedrin. Now for anyone who has no clue who the Pharisees or Sanhedrin were, let me explain for a second. They were technically two different groups with two different foci, and there was obviously some overlap, as we see here with Nicodemus, with some men being members of both groups. The Pharisees were a movement that grew out of those 400 years of prophetic silence in between the close of the Old Testament and the start of the events of the New Testament. We know from other historical documents that it was during this period of 400 years that the Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered the area and forced everyone in the Holy Land to learn Greek culture and the Greek language. Following that, the Romans conquered the same exact area and placed their own puppet government in place. As the culture, language, and government was becoming more and more Gentile and pagan, a movement arose of men who zealously wanted to preserve the conservative Jewish way of life and teaching. As such, they held political, significant political sway, even though they weren't a political group. These men, who were not all rabbis, were so overzealous in their preservation of conservative Judaism that they tacked on all these additional rules to the Mosaic Law so that people didn't come close to accidentally breaking any of the original commandments. It was hyper-legalism. 
and that a strict obedience to the rules was the highest priority. As we see with their run-ins with Jesus, they only cared about the obedience to the rules without a care as to what one's heart condition was before God, nor their level of love for God. In essence, they made the law exactly what it was never supposed to be. It was supposed to start, it was always supposed to start with a love for God, which then flowed into an obedience of of his commands, not the other way around. That's the Pharisees. The Sanhedrin, meanwhile, also have their roots during this 400-year period in between testaments. The original understanding of the Sanhedrin originated with the judges that Moses chose to help him judge judicial cases at the suggestion of his father-in-law, which then precipitated the judges who ruled Israel during the book of Judges and then disappeared during the kingdom period of Israel, ending with the judge and prophet Samuel. Then, when the Romans conquered the Holy Land, like I already mentioned, they set up their own governing authorities over the area, including King Herod, and then governors that included Pontius Pilate. Since they didn't want to bother themselves with the religious matters of Judaism, famous Jewish scholar Josephus records for us that the Romans themselves set up a Jewish governing body to deal with Jewish religious matters and they were called the Sanhedrin. This group, which eventually numbered at 71 men, was made up of rabbis, Pharisees, and priests. They had zero political governing power. That was solely held by the puppet Herodian kings or the subsequent governors. But they were given authority over all religious controversies related to the Mosaic Law. This is why we see the Sanhedrin having to convince Only through threat of riot and insurrection, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to allow the death penalty to be leveled at Jesus of Nazareth. All they could do politically was throw a temper tantrum like a toddler to get what they wanted. Now, back to our passage. In verse 10, we also find out that Nicodemus was a rabbi or a teacher of the Jewish law. This guy was the cream of the crop of his day. Societally, educationally, religiously, and politically. This is why John picked this guy to specifically record his conversation with Jesus. He wanted to take the type of the most educated, politically powerful, and religious guy that existed in that part of the world at that time. Why? Because John is setting up for the fact That someone can have the most education, the most intelligence, the most religious wisdom and political power this world has to offer and still not understand what Jesus offers to every human being. You've heard me say this before, but in referencing 1 Corinthians 1, God purposely created his plan of salvation to be utter foolishness to the world and those he hasn't opened the spiritual eyes of to understand. So when the most highly educated and intelligent people are atheists and claim that there is no God, that should not come as any surprise to any of us. God purposely created the only way to salvation in him to be impossible to understand and achieve through any human wisdom, scientific exploration, philosophical wandering, or accidentally stumbling across it. 
He purposely created it to be a humble coming before God in repentance based only on the salvation and redemption bought by Jesus' death and resurrection. And that makes absolutely no sense to the world and its wisdom. So we have this man thoroughly entrenched in what the world says is the best of the best of every area of life. And what does he do? Verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. The fact that John records that Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night was because he didn't want anyone else to see him or know what he was doing. Why? Because if it was found out that this guy, the cream of the crop, had gone to see this fringe rabbi who had already challenged the authority of the Jewish rabbis, you know, he just drove everybody out of the temple and shut down the temple worship for that day. This man would risk losing everything he had worked so hard to build for his life. Nicodemus wanted to pick Jesus' brain without risking any loss from the world. Now, what does Nicodemus mean by this? Is this a question that he's asking Jesus? No, it's a statement. Why? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, Nicodemus, right off the bat, lets his true colors show here. Nicodemus was highly regarded by everyone, including himself. He was the quintessential gifted person who knew how gifted he was and wanted everyone else to know it too. Anybody here know anybody like that? <laughs> how, do we get, how do we get that from this statement? Well, Nicodemus first addresses Jesus as rabbi. This is a formal and polite title for, in a human view, did Jesus receive any formal training to be a rabbi? No. Right? He was a carpenter's son. But Nicodemus and his peers in the Sanhedrin could recognize that there was something going on with this Jesus of Nazareth. Nicodemus relates this by his statement that God was clearly with Jesus. But here was the problem. Nicodemus only regarded Jesus as somewhat of a peer. Somewhat. And in Nicodemus' mind, he was only doing so to be polite. Jesus didn't have anywhere near the same level of rabbinical education as he did, nor the same Jewish governing power. This guy was a nobody, and that's what made him intriguing, but there wasn't much more than that. Nicodemus saw Jesus as, at the max, no more than what he was. As we've been touching on each week, Jesus' response is not anywhere near what Nicodemus was expecting. Nicodemus was expecting something like, thank you, I'm honored to have your presence here. This will add some credibility to my teaching. Or, wow, Nicodemus is standing in my living room. How cool is this? I'm sure Nicodemus was expecting some kind of in-kind overture from Jesus. What Nicodemus was not expecting was what Jesus actually responded with. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
When Jesus would start a sentence with the words truly, truly, or verily, verily, if you're a KJV, KJV fan, it was usually in rebuttal to some other way of thinking. So even by Jesus starting this sentence with that doubly powerful opening, he was rebutting what, Jesus, what Nicodemus had just said. In other words, Jesus is saying, no, that's not how you should be thinking. This is what you should be thinking about. And what is that this? The fact that one, anyone, no matter who they are, has to be born again or born from above, depending on your translation, if they are to see the kingdom of God. Now, regardless of what anyone's initial understanding of that statement was, what did it already mean? That anything and everything that Nicodemus had invested in in this world and everything he had done in training to become a rabbi and every string he pulled to warrant a place on the Sanhedrin council and every sacrifice he had made to become a Pharisee, none, absolutely none of that mattered when it came to entering God's kingdom. Man, that flew in the face of everything the Pharisees taught about pleasing God. At the heart of Pharisaical teaching was that a legalistic obedience to every single one of not only God's commands, but the Pharisees' commands that they had tacked on over the years. That was the way to God in the Pharisees' minds. But here was this nobody with no rabbinical training, making this claim that it had nothing to do with any of that. This word translated again, or from above, depending on your translation, is best understood as from above. The phrase from above was a Jewish roundabout expression to also refer to God. It's just like when somebody today says, heaven only knows, to mean that God only knows. Nicodemus's response is a little odd. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? <laughs> In order to understand Nicodemus's thought process and what he was getting at here, we need to understand a little bit of background. Because when you read this, Knowing that this also meant a spiritual birth, and knowing how smart and educated Nicodemus was, you can't help but think, surely this guy isn't so dumb to think that Jesus was being literal in talking about a new birth. And he wasn't, and here's why. In Judaism, like I've described before, a Gentile could convert to Judaism by way of baptism. And in this Jewish understanding that a Gentile was now born from above, or given a spiritual birth. That was well established. Everybody had that in their mind. Gentile to become a Jewish person. That was well established. But then like we talked about at the beginning of this series, along comes this also nobody named John, son of the priest Zechariah, who is baptizing already Jewish people as a sign of their repentance. That was already highly controversial because in in the rabbis, Pharisees, priests, and Sanhedrin's minds, if you were Jewish, you were already good. It was those filthy Gentiles who had it all wrong and who needed to be baptized into the Jewish religion, thus showing that they had now been born from above and starting their new Jewish life in adherence to the Mosaic law. 
But John the Baptist was the first to introduce this concept of repentance of one's personal sins and baptism to show that repentance and turning from that sin to follow God. Most importantly, regardless of who you were, Jewish or Gentile. He made the playing field completely level through his ministry of baptism by water, completely shifting the basis and foundation for pleasing God. John the Baptist introduced that repentance of sin, not a focus on following every single religious rule, was the only way to please God. But Nicodemus, both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, was not about in any way to give any credence or toehold to that way of thinking about God. What John the Baptist was already famous for up and down the Jordan River was not on Nicodemus's radar as having any sort of truth or credibility. So if that wasn't what Nicodemus was going to entertain, what was the only other concept that he could entertain, no matter how absurd, that Jesus was talking about a physical rebirth? And Nicodemus knew it was ludicrous what he was saying. That's why, as one biblical scholar points out, he phrases his response to Jesus in the way he does. He's saying, surely you don't mean that, anyone, that, that an old man can be physically born again, and surely you don't mean that anyone can be reincarnated, right? That's how ridiculous Nicodemus thought what Jesus was referring to was. Nicodemus's response wasn't a sincerely questioning response. It was an attempt at confirming that Jesus wasn't seriously sounding as ridiculous as he seemed to be. Jesus blows past Nicodemus's antagonism and obvious purposeful ignorance of what John the Baptist had been preaching for some time now and instead revisits and confirms what Nicodemus simply wanted to forget John the Baptist had been promoting. Verse 5, Jesus answered, truly, truly, there it is again, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Several theories have been given as to what Jesus is referring to when he refers to someone born of water. One theory is that Jesus is referring to natural childbirth, like when we still refer to a woman about to go into labor having her water break, and then a person naturally born must then also have a spiritual birth. However, the way that Jesus phrases this is one must have both births water, and spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Logically, anyone who is humanly born would also need the spiritual birth. But just having been naturally born doesn't constitute a qualification for salvation as the way Jesus phrases this. What this view also does is that it poses a dangerous theological belief. This view would mean that one needs to be physically born in order to have a shot at entering the kingdom of God. Do you see how dangerous that view is? This would mean that anyone who was conceived was given a soul at that moment of conception and therefore is a creation and a human being loved by God but died before birth either by miscarriage or abortion is disqualified from being with Jesus when they die. We know from the rest of scripture that this is simply wrong and downright heretical. 
Until they're old enough to accept or reject the gospel of salvation in Jesus, if someone dies between the moment of conception and being old enough to understand and either accept or reject the gospel, God has grace on those children and takes them to be with him. That is a crucial truth to know and understand. So, that is not what Jesus is referring to here. Other views on verse 5 are that the water refers to baptism, but that would mean that Jesus is making baptism integral to salvation, which it's not. Baptism is a public sign, display, and declaration of the salvation you already have through faith. And another view is that water is referring to the Holy Spirit. If that was the case, Jesus would have no reason to even mention water in the first place, as he immediately then also refers to being born of the Holy Spirit. Like I was referencing before, the best way to understand what Jesus is referring to here in verse 5 is in connection with what John the Baptist had been preaching all this time. John was baptizing people in water, right? Okay. And had already declared that while he baptized in water, Jesus would baptize or bathe people in the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus is really getting at here, which would have been completely foreign to Nicodemus, was confirming what John the Baptist had been preaching all this time. Unless one repented of their sin, which is what John the Baptist's whole ministry was focused on and receiving the Holy Spirit, one could not enter the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't just a simple conversion from one religion to another, as Nicodemus and every other Jewish teacher and leader held concretely in their minds through baptism from paganism into Judaism. It had nothing to do with that. In fact, it had nothing to do with what your previous religion even was. Instead, it has everything to do with repenting of your sin and turning to God to receive the Holy Spirit based on that repentance and his merciful forgiveness of your sin. It takes a sincere humility and the sincere commitment to turn away from your sinful desires and what you want to turn over complete control to the Holy Spirit's conviction and guidance. Being born again is the spiritual birth, the receiving of the Holy Spirit based solely on repentance and faith in Jesus' death and resurrection paying for our sin. It has nothing to do with how smart you are, how educated you are, how much power you have, how much money you have, what your background, ethnicity, race, political leaning, or perceived identity is. It has nothing to do with how religious your parents were, what sort what you sort of are religiously, how religious you are, or how good you think you are. It has nothing to do with any of that. We are all in need of the spiritual birth. It doesn't matter who you are, what your past is, or what, your, what sins you struggle with the most. We can only have that by repenting of the sinful lives that we have, turning from that way of life 180 degrees to pursuing God for all of who he is. We can only have that by coming to God in recognition of how sinful we are and how our sin separates us from him. We can only have that by coming to God in acceptance that the payment for that sin is death. Both deaths, 
physical death and the second death or banishment to hell and that Jesus, perfect and sinless as God, took our place to pay that sin debt as a substitute on our behalf. We can only have that by coming to God in commitment to now living for him and making Jesus the king over the rest of your life. The Bible says that at that moment, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead, literally and immediately comes and makes a home within us. This is what's known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit and what's known as the new birth or being born again or being born from above. From that moment on, the Holy Spirit starts changing us into new people. Hence, the new birth reference. We start seeing ourselves. We start seeing other people. And we start seeing the whole world through new eyes and in a new way. We start seeing our previous sinful desires once so strong in a new light. Everything about us, our lives, our dreams, our focus, our purpose, and our meaning is made new. We are given the new hope of an eternal home we are now 100% assured of inheriting. We are given the new peace of knowing that our lives are dictated by God's plan, that he loves us immensely and he blesses those who seek him through reading his word and prayer. We are given the new joy of knowing that even the hardest and most heartbreaking experiences in life, God will redeem and always has a reason for, even if we never see it this side of heaven. We are given a moral compass that will always hold true. We just need to seek the Holy Spirit's wisdom in each situation and ask God for forgiveness when we inevitably fail. We are given the new purpose and new mission of bringing this news of forgiveness, salvation, hope, peace, joy, and empowerment of the Holy Spirit to others God has put in our path in life. In short, we get God and all of who he is in every way. That is the ultimate gift of the new birth. So let us live in that new birth every moment of every day. And like Jesus did here, reveal it to one more person. I referenced this before, but this scripture closes our message perfectly. Don't close your Bibles yet. Especially in connection with Nicodemus, the scholar, teacher, remember who this guy was? and council member. This is 1 Corinthians 1, like I referenced before. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose these things, chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, 
and use them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, you want to boast about anything, the only thing you have is to boast about the Lord. And so we will boast only about the Lord. For he is all we have, and he is all we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this scripture. We thank you for this record of this highly educated scholar who still had no clue what life was all about, what faith was all about. And you pointed him to the only way to eternal life. And Lord, you point each and every one of us here or watching this online later to that only way of life. The only way of life is through you. Through the, through the acceptance and the recognition that our sin separates us from you and there's nothing we can do about it. We can't do enough good things to outweigh the bad. We're, we will never be good enough. We will never measure up to the standard of holiness that is you. But Lord, you still loved us so much that you made a way for us. So instead of railing that there's only one way, we are grateful that there is any way at all to reconciliation with you. Accepting that our sin separates us from you, accepting that you paid our sin death debt on our behalf and taking that for ourselves. Repenting of our sin, making you the king over the rest of our lives and experiencing that new birth, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit who is here to convict us and guide us and give us all the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I pray that we would live in this new birth every moment of every day, seeing things the way that you want us to see them, living our lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.